0: Turzo and you are listening to The Radical. This week's guest has enjoyed a stellar career, but not without its challenges. Having launched his career in a band that rode the wave of 80s New wave and Pop with four top 10 hits, he experienced a band breakup that led to much circumspection in launching a solo career that has only strengthened and endured over the past few decades leading to some acting, some storytelling, and some great new music. Today, he releases a new record, I Just Don't Know What to Do With Myself. Songwriter, musician, and raconteur, Colin Hay comes aboard to discuss men at work, his solo career, his dad's continuing influence, and the good fortune of being Scottish. Coming up, my conversation with Colin Hay. Colin, welcome to the show. I'm happy to see your face and I'm happy to have this discussion.
1: Nice to be with you.
0: I'm excited you have a new record coming out um, this very day um, called I Just Don't Know What to Do With Myself, which I think a lot of us felt pretty deeply in the last year, year and a half. Uh, tell me a little bit about the record. When did you record it, and uh, how did you record it under the circumstances?
1: Well, I um, the circumstances were um, I was sitting downstairs, I, exactly where I am in this at this moment. In the I call it the basement, um, but it is a studio. And um, my mother, when she was alive and when she came to visit me, uh, she called it uh, the washroom because there's a washing machine in it. And so it doesn't matter how much studio equipment you have in here, if there's um, a washing machine and dryer within sight, it's the it's the laundry or the washroom, you know. So she would say to me, I'll just be down in the washroom, son. So, <laughs> so consequently, the studio that I have here is called uh, the washroom. So I was sitting here uh, a few months ago, and um, I had... Uh, um, Finished this uh, original album um, of material, which um, I was hoping to release this year, and uh, but I wasn't sure if I was going to go out on the road on tour. And uh, the record company that I work with, uh, Com- Compass Records, they they said, well, you know, look, if you uh, if you uh, go release an album uh, without a tour. You know, it's it's tough, you know, especially being an independent label. And it's it's tough to get noticed anyway. But really, if you're touring, it just adds to the story. And people, uh, it's the first thing people ask. If you go to people and say, look, you know, this guy's got a new record out. Um, they, the One of the first things they say is, oh, well, is he touring? You know, so if you say no, it's even very difficult to get um, any, you know, print or press or people to take any notice. And so they said, would you... Um, would you consider releasing it next year, early next year, because it'll be upon us before we know it. And and I'm definitely touring um, March, April, May next year. So I said, yeah, that'll be fine. So this is the long, the long, uh, the long answer, by the way. So I was sitting um, down here, and I was um, Jerry Marsden had had you know recently had recently passed away, uh, and uh, so I started. I was playing these major seventh chords, uh, trying to practice guitar and um, learn about things that I should have learned about when I was 14. Um, And... um And I started to play uh, Don't Let the Sun Catch You Crying, and I liked the way it sounded, and I was thinking about Jerry and the Pacemakers, and just that whole period of my life. And so I just recorded it, and I sent it to uh, my friend Chad Fisher, who's a great composer, musician, friend of mine who lives in, he has a a very fancy studio that he's just built in Santa Monica. and. and I said, see what you can do with this. And so he did, and he orchestrated, uh, put some strings and did different things to so it, played a little this and a little that and sent it back to me. And it sounded really beautiful and delightful. And and he said, well, this is good. He said, send me something else. And so I just thought, and he, he's been badgering me for years to to uh, do a covers record. Or, and, uh, you know, I always put it off and... and um, so I just decided to record some songs because I had the time because the, the original record's not going to be released till the new year. So I thought, well, I'm sitting around and I literally didn't really know what to do with myself. And so I thought I'll record some songs that had some kind of impact on me growing up or had, had meant something to me in my life. And so I just started um, recording songs and, the, you know, just songs that sprang to mind quite you know, quite quickly. I didn't, I didn't you know, Delve too deep, or really kind of go out of my mind, trying to really uh, concentrate on, you know, obscure songs, or even, you know, and there's lots of those that had impact as well. But I just, I just kind of recorded the ones that sprang to mind, um, you know, quite quickly. So that's that's what I did, and so when you asked me about how we recorded it, we recorded it like that. We didn't really record in the same room uh, at all. Um, we, I just would record guitar and voices. And sometimes I put a bit of bass on and, but but basically I would record the guitars and uh, the vocal and what i tried to do was I tried to make it so that if you didn't put anything else on it at all uh, then it would it would still stand up you could just go okay well here you go here's a record just guitar and voice and have that be enough I tried to make it interesting enough that that would be the case and then I sent it to Chad and he would and he um um Firstly, he's always been saying, "Oh, you know, just just record a get an album with his guitar and voice," and then of course he you know he put all this orchestration on it and piano and drums and harmonium and things and so that idea went out the window, but it sounded so great what he did, so that was the process we did. I would send it to him, he would send it back, and then we, and then uh, then he mixed it.
0: Yeah, because it's beautiful. <clears throat> I mean, look, I've seen you live where you kind of do the you know, minimalist performance, you know, it's your voice and your guitar and you do your thing. Yeah. Um, Waterloo Sunset, you know, I've heard that and that is so beautiful. Uh, your vocal performance is incredible. Um, and then everything around it, what a beautiful song.
1: Well, yeah, exactly. And it's one of the, it's one of the greats, uh, you know, truly one of the greats. And um, that, was, uh, that was playing in the sound system when I was 14 and leaving uh, Southampton docks, getting onto the Fairstar uh, ship in uh, uh, the Italian line, the Sitmar, um, the Sitmar line, which was going to take us to uh, the New World, uh, Melbourne and the other side of the world. So Waterloo Sunset was the song that was singing, that was playing. Uh, that and also uh, we got to get out of this place. Also was seemed to be the song that they were playing through the system, but Waterloo Sunset uh, had you know had been a hit, of course, um, and um, an astonishingly beautiful song, and, and just uh, lyrically, and of course it has the, the that, just that magic guitar line, which is you know so fantastic. So that was that was that was a song that I just um, I've never I've never really. You know thought about recording it myself until that moment and then i thought well i'll, I'll have a go at that and it um and uh, it came out quite well i thought
0: right and do you feel like you know look a lot of this stuff is sounds like it's a little you know nostalgia for you at a point in your life and i mean is that a little bit of comfort that you were trying to give yourself last year by kind of playing these songs to yourself even you know, not just recording them
1: yeah i think i think um I think not. I don't think uh, consciously, uh, but um but that was a byproduct of recording the songs. I remember I remember when I recorded Waterloo Sunset and I played it back to myself and uh and I spontaneously um uh, uh, had tears when I listened to it, not because of my performance or anything, but because of the fact that I was transported back to um uh, Hamilton Street uh, where my mother and father uh, had a music shop in Scotland, in the southwest coast of Scotland. And, um, and so I was transported back to there where um, when the shop would close at six o'clock every night, often my father would, would, um, would call me into the shop uh, after hours and he would play DJ because he had to listen to music to know what he was selling. And so he would sit there and we, he would play different songs to me what do you think of these guys, you know, and he would play me the Beatles and he'd go, I think they'll do quite well. And I said, yeah, I think they, I think you're right. So I was, I was transported back to, back to that time, which was a truly a, you know, a, a magical time in my life.
0: Yeah. What was their, um, I'm curious about your kind of migration story. What was the impetus for that? Like, you know, it's a pretty far uh, that's kind of going around the other side of the uh, the globe. Um,
1: yeah, you couldn't really, you can't really go much further, and and if you do go much further, you're, you're on your way back. <laughs> it's truth. <laughs> so, um, what sparked the adventure, so
0: to speak? I mean, was it a, a voluntary choice your parents made, or was it something? Other?
1: Yeah, it was. Um, well, firstly, it was an adventure, like you say. Um, it was an adventure because my father especially um, had some uh, you know he had he had some spirit to him and wanted to do things with his life and wanted to try and create um, a good life for his family and uh, and he was sick of the weather in Scotland that really got him down it was raining all the time and um, also the Australian government at that particular time Post uh, war, post uh, Second World War, right through to the—I don't know when they stopped it—but they had a very active um, immigration policy of, uh, of 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 basically paying for you to go to a, to go to Australia. It only costs you ten pounds to cow. go. Th- yeah, and if you if you stayed for if you if you. Uh, if you stayed for two years and wanted to go home, then they would pay for you to go home. But if you went back within the two years, you had to pay. You had to pay your way back, and they figured that most people who go would stay for two years, and then very few people would go back after that. and And that was correct because most people who go to Australia don't leave, don't go, don't go home. Um, I mean, it was a, quite a you know, it was a relative, It was a racist uh, uh, immigration policy in the sense that they only wanted white people, you know, from Europe, or even they wanted um, uh, immigrants from Britain to start with, and then because they wanted to build up the uh, the workforce and also. They were a bit scared of the fact that in the Second World War Australia was was attacked by the Japanese, and so they thought, "Well, there's this huge amount of coastline that we do, that we can't defend." Um, I think you know, there's a famous uh, English comic that does a great bit about it. Actually, about people could invade the north of Australia, and you wouldn't uh, you wouldn't even really know about it for months, you know, because it's such a huge place. So anyway, they started. A politician called Arthur Caldwell started, um, this, started this immigration push, and of course, there wasn't enough people to come from Britain. So then they started to get people from from Italy and Greece and different parts, and then the Balkans. and That's how the that's how the, the, the migrants built up in Australia. and And as the um, um, you know, as the number of migrants uh, increased and the number of different countries increased. Um, you know, the country became a much more interesting place. Mm. So, and so that's how we got there. Yeah. Do you think that in any way informed,
0: you know, when you're a musician, a little bit of a nomad anyway, right? That's kind of what the career requires in some ways. And, you know, when I was a teen, my parents moved me around, you know, after being settled for 14 years and we moved around. Yeah. And I kind of feel like it added to my curiosity in the world and kind of lessened the fear of going to new places. Do you feel any of that with that uh, particular
1: move? Yeah, I think, well, it it completely blew my mind when I went to Australia. I mean, I was 14 years old. And, um, I mean, I was lucky in the sense that, you know, I spoke English, although with a Scottish accent. So, you know, there's a lot of people who didn't really know what I was saying. But apart from that, I, I was treated pretty well you know, I didn't suffer much, uh, you know, um, bias or prejudice from, from, uh, from Australians, although a lot of people did, depending on where you were from, you know. Um, and the people that I met, uh, the kids that I met, were amazing because they, uh, you know, in Scotland, it's a great place, but it's very socially entrenched, uh, religiously, socially. You know, the class structure is very you know it's very apparent um whereas in australia uh, you know there is there is a certain amount of, of of class structure but it was it was really was much more much more egalitarian it was much more um you know somebody with immense wealth could be you know just wandering around on a saturday with you know flip-flops and shorts on and how people looked had no real you know direct bearing or reference as to their standing in life you know um, so the kids that I met were, were, were just, they were, they were like, they were much freer than, than when I was growing up in Scotland. People, you know, people, uh, that I met, the kids, they would go surfing, you know, and they would drive down to the surf and they didn't even have car licenses, you know. They had cars, there were 16 and their parents, I don't know whether their parents knew, but they would just drive down the coast and stay there, just sleep on the beach, you know, and, and um, drink and uh, smoke weed, you know, and um, and go to school. But everything was just everything was just you know, there was no big deal, you know. And you'd go down to the ocean, and the ocean waves were massive, you know, and uh, the weather was incredible, and, and the girls were beautiful. It was just amazing. It was just amazing. You know, it was completely different from from how I was brought up. You know, Scotland. Fantastic,
0: and I assume you know with your father's kind of interest in music that they encouraged you. I mean, did they? Well, uh, they both want m- you to play an instrument. Did they not,
1: or is that just you on your own? I mean, well, um, in Scotland, everybody sings. Really, you know, most people a lot. Well, I say most people. There's a lot of people in Scotland who are musical, and um, I think there's a tradition of it. There's a tradition of Uh, Billy Connolly has a great uh, comedy bit about it, too, about, you know, that's how you get into a party, you know, is your ability to be able to sing a song, you know. (laughs) Otherwise, you don't get into the party because if you go to a party, you have to be able to sing. So I think there's a little bit of that, you know. But my father was on the stage when he was young. He was a singer and a dancer and what they called a child prodigy. And he was a beautiful singer, my old man it was very charming was very funny and indeed i think was a good writer although he never wrote he wrote a few things uh on bits of paper that he would um show to me later in his life um he would uh i'd go uh, you know i'd i'd um i'd go home and he'd be sitting there and he goes Hey, what do you think about that guy? He goes the guy with the pigtails. You know that guy, Snoopy Dog. He's good. That guy. Have you seen him? You know, and then he would go. I wrote a wee verse. I was listening to a song, and I wrote a verse, and so he would write different, uh, different rhymes. You know, when he, when he would hear music on the on the television. <laughs> anyway, to answer, finish answering your question, my mother and father were both were both. Uh, it was in the it was in the genie in the genes my mother could sing and my father could sing and indeed they did. And uh, <coughs> they were both beautiful dancers and uh, I didn't I didn't inherit that great trait, really, but um and encouragement, uh they it was too it was paradox well it was I don't know if it's the right word. It was um They gave me, they they paid for singing lessons when I was about 15, 16 years old, which was good. And then when it it, it became clear that that's really what I wanted to do, uh, then they became worried.
0: (laughs) So it was fine if it was a- uh, Hobby. Education or hobby, yes. Once it was going pro, not so good.
1: Not so good, no.
0: Yeah. What did I want to... So, look, I don't want to go back because you've talked about this probably 15 million times and go through your history of minute work. That just wouldn't be fun for you. Um, And it's well enough known. Um, you had enough of hit songs, enough top 10 hits. Um, My curiosity is really, was that... Did that primarily happen in America or did that break out of Australia and then you guys found your way I mean how did I just want to know the progress of it um
1: of men at work yeah oh it was uh, well it was um it was a, an incredible story really it um it uh we were a Melbourne based band and we had we had um a good band of of interesting musicians And um, interesting personalities. Uh, Ron Stryker, the other guitar player, was very um, inspiring to me as he would create these soundscapes and and, uh, very interesting, interesting uh, writer. And so he opened my mind up to a lot of things and made me a better songwriter, I think. so we came together in the middle of 79 and then we started to, you know, we, were, we Ron and I were playing for a year before that, but um, uh, when the band finally came together and I think, the, you know, in the middle of 79 and we started playing out in places, we immediately started to um, draw a crowd and then the crowd just got bigger and bigger and um, we had to move to different venues, bigger venues. And so, um, and we did that for about two years. And so we had this gradual um, increase in audience and increase in, in the number of songs that, um, that I was writing and that we were playing. And, and, um, and so we felt we were on our way, you know, in a very humble way, but still, you know, we didn't have a record deal or anything, but we were playing to maybe, you know, a thousand people. Which was a lot of people to put into a room without any kind of record deal or anything. People would just go, "Okay," we'll, and be, it was on usually on a Thursday, Friday, Saturday. We played six nights a week in different, you know, different different areas of town, you know, in suburbs and then in, in the inner city as well, which were the more. Um, you know, hit places to play, but we we played a lot of places, and then, and then we and then we got a deal with uh, CBS Records then, which became Sony, <clears throat> and they gave us a deal for a single, so we made "Who Can It Be Now," which went to number two in Australia, and then there was synchronistically there was a a a, a, a CBS Records convention, I think it was in Miami, um, I think it was in Miami or. May, might have been Puerto Rico but I think it, I think it was Miami not quite sure but anyway there was this CBS Records convention and all these record CBS Records affiliates from all over the world were there and um, Peter Carpin who signed us uh, it was a, an A&R guy from Australia he had the single who can it be now and he didn't even say who it was he just gave the people the single played the video and people got very excited about it and went back home and and uh, and uh and thought this was going to be a hit and so the song got released uh, uh all over the world and became a hit in many places like Switzerland and um Israel i think was very big and and uh and then it broke, just broke in different, different parts of the world. The US was really the last country to pick up on the band. It was probably about six months after everywhere else, which doesn't seem like a long time, but in the life of a record, it, it is quite a long time. But once it hit in the United States, uh, then it was pretty crazy because the first album, you know, stayed at number one for 15 weeks or something, 16 weeks, which is four months, which is really ridiculous now, but never ever happened now. And uh, we sold millions and millions of records. It was just, it was astonishing, you know. So, yeah, it was a kind of a fairy tale, uh, truly a phenomenon, you know. Right. And what, I mean, in that
0: period of work, I mean, it's kind of condensed, right? I mean, did you guys stay together for about
1: eight years, nine years? How long? uh, No, we only stayed together for for a minute, really. We were only together for, we, we formed in the middle of 79. And by the end of 1983, it was done. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting.
0: And coming off of that type of success, like for yourself personally, um, what type of contemplation goes on? I mean, did you think, this is great? I got my freedom back to do whatever I want to do. Did you feel like, oh crap, what now? I mean, where was your mind at?
1: Well, it was really um, uh, complicated. In, in a lot of ways, uh, but when I say at the end of '83 it was done, it, I didn't realise it at the time. Um, you know, perhaps if you if 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 you have if a band has some kind of say, travelling psychologist would have made a lot of sense, um, because uh, two of the band members got sacked. You know, uh, the drummer and the bass player, and in retrospect. Um, You know, there probably wasn't really, uh, you know, that wasn't really the the move to make, you know, when I think about it. Because really Men at Work was those five people, you know, and we had a manager as well, a guy called Russell, who was a sixth member of the band, really. But really the the five members, that was what created that sound that played those songs in that particular way. So that was really the band. But, of course, um, one's ego gets the better of you and um, and you think, okay, well, the f- four of us wanted to keep going uh, the uh, Greg and Ron and I, and Russell the manager, we wanted to keep going as men at work. Um, but it was really done. it really wasn't um, wasn't happening and um, so it kind of it just kind of you know fizzled out really you know ron left during the third album he never really particularly liked men at work i don't think ron liked uh what we did before men at work but when the band came up along and and we, we made the first record or two i don't think ron was particularly into it really because i think that he thought that the producer um you know popified the songs to a degree that he didn't particularly care for all that much you know he liked the, I think what we did before that more anyway I'm, I'm, I'm you know I shouldn't speak for him I don't really know his reasoning is why he but I wasn't surprised that, that that Ron left and he just said one day look he said um um uh, you know he said I'm gonna go home I said oh yeah and he I said he coming back and he says no nah, I don't think I'm coming back that's how he left he just left one one afternoon from the studio and he just never came back and left the band (laughs) you know and uh, that was that was kind of not surprising in a way you know because he was a he was a man of few words you know and um and then uh, so it was greg and i left and so greg When the third album came out and went, came and went with a whisper, then Greg said, oh, I'm done too. And he didn't want to keep going with it. And then I realized after that, when I was by myself and there was no band left to leave, I realized that really, that's what I'd really, that's what I really wanted. You know, um, when it was all said and done, I really just, I really just wanted to be on my own. And I had been on my own for from when I was 14 until I was, you know, 26 or 27. I'd been playing guitar just by myself and writing songs and singing solo gigs and stuff like that. And that was my natural game. And the band came along. That was the real punctuation mark. That was the, that was the abnormal part of my, you know, kind of music uh, career, if you want to call it that. It wasn't a career at that point. But um, after it was over, I, I did I, I did feel a sense of relief, and I thought, oh, okay, I'm 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 on my own, I'm I'm, uh, and I, I can do what I want, and um, so that's what I did.
0: And what was the? I'm sure you didn't do anything immediately, but I mean, let's say within that year or so. I mean, what was that for you? Like, what did you do?
1: Um, I got married. Um, to to Linda this girl that I um, I'd known since university and and we we uh, we got married and then I um, uh, drank and um, I, you know started to develop I, I knew that I'd been I knew that I was in trouble uh, with alcohol um and I was kind of I no one else knew or no one else you know kind of mentioned it you know because most of most of my friends were kind of uh drug addicts and alcoholics and high functioning they were very successful people but you know they were just getting messed up all the time so was i i made a record um i made um i went to uh oh we you know we made a third album you know and after the third album i went to um I went to England to make a, a, my first solo album with um, a, a great record producer called Robin Miller, who um, who had produced the Shady records and everything but The Girl and Fine Young Cannibals and many, many different great acts. So I made a record with him called uh, Looking for Jack. That was my first uh, solo album, which I did for Columbia. It was a commercial failure, and then I... Um, I got uh, offered a deal at MCA Records and I went over there towards <laughs> the end of the 80s. And uh, that was also a commercial failure in, um, in everywhere in the world except for Brazil. And then, so around 1990, 1991, I got dropped by MCA Records, which coincided with me moving to California. And I moved here and then I just started basically with a clean slate. I had no record deal, uh, nothing, no agent. And I, so I just thought, well, what will I do now? And so I just started doing gigs and making records at home. Mm. That's what I've been doing ever since. And
0: so you're talking about the drinking stuff. I mean, was there a sobriety moment then that happened? I mean, how did you, you know, California's another big move from, I mean, you know, it is from Australia. Yeah. Um, it isn't if you're a touring rock star, I mean, in a way. Um, yeah. But I mean, well, my, where did you get the discipline, like with your creativity, to kind of like just stay very focused as you have?
1: Um, well, it's um, it comes upon you. Um, I think that um, it's not something that I consciously conjure up, um, and in many ways, I sometimes kind of put it off. You know, just wander around and you know pretend that I'm uh not a songwriter anymore that I'm done you know and I've everything that I've oh you know I did pretty well I wrote some hits and you know some songs that people like but then these ideas pop into your head and um you just kind of find yourself sitting around following them and uh and then you just kind of you know, I've got some nice toys down here in the studio, so I just uh, start messing around with 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 those ideas, and you know, a couple of people come up, and all of a sudden you're, you know, working on a record. You know, it's not it's not a, it's not something where I feel like I'm particularly focused. I just feel like I'm kind of, uh, you know, it's you know what I do. It's what I've always done, so I'm just, you know, trying to do it better. Right. Was there a point?
0: you know, since this is a, a bit of a lonely game sometimes. Um, was there a point where you felt like, hey, you know what? This is precisely what I wanted to accomplish. You know what I mean? I've got the right size audience in front of me. They're responding to my material. I'm writing great material. Like, was it, when did that moment kind of as a solo artist happen for you?
1: Um, well, I've had lots of moments like that um, over the years. Uh, and they're they're all kind of you know on face value they're small moments because they're they're personal moments and they're not necessarily in front of big crowds or anything like that but they're they're just moments where you kind of feel like you've um you know you've hit a mark uh, just where you know that that performance you you know that it's done what you wanted it to do you know because you can feel it you know um I remember playing at the Birchmere in um, Virginia, uh, which is a gig that's been around since the '60s, or maybe even before the '60s. But um, and for some reason, I always did quite well there, you know. And um, and I just remember um, standing on the stage at a sound check, and I'd been there many times before, but I was, st- I was standing on the stage, and the, the it was the same crew who were always there when I come and they they were happy to see me and uh and I was and I just just kind of done the sound check and I just was on the stage and I just had one of those moments where I thought oh okay this is exact exactly what I'm supposed to do with my life (laughs) and and it was a you know you have those moments of euphoria they're fleeting and then they you know they come and then they just go but it was particularly um it was particularly uh, strong at, at, you know i could feel it and uh, so so you have you have those moments where you just think oh you know i'm on i'm on the right you know i'm on the right path and and um you know, sometimes it's a bit elusive because when I first started to do it, I thought, you know, I was, I was still a bit of a slave to my past where I thought, you know, selling millions of records and being number one for 16 weeks was my yardstick. And I wanted to get back up to the, those lofty peaks again. But it's so stressful. Um, you know, it's like drinking you know, where you try and manage your drinking or where you try and monitor it and make sure that you're not drinking too much and all that, it's so stressful. And then you just think, Oh, if I just stop and then, you know, like all true alcoholics, you just go, Well, I just won't drink today, then it takes the stress away of of um of you know, it's it's just this that immediate. It brings it brings it down to the present. And so that's what playing was like too, where I thought, Well, I won't even bother trying to do that trying to keep to compete with myself i'll just i'll just deal with this audience that's in front of me and not the audiences that's not here i'll just play to these people because they've actually made the effort and uh, and that's what that's what made it um worthwhile and that's what made it fulfilling and that's what made it um fun you know because you're just you're just here and there's just you in the audience and you have to ent- you have to entertain them you have to make them feel better when they're walking out than when they walked in and um, you have to you have to just you know give them an experience and try and transport them to a place that makes them feel good you know and uh, so that's a big job in a way and so I took that very seriously and still do you know so that's what's That's what my that's what basically my my professional life is now. You know.
0: Yeah, I had the good fortune of seeing you perform about four and a half years ago, four years ago in Boulder, Colorado. And what was remarkable to me, you know, it's yourself and really an instrument and your voice and your talent as a storyteller. Like in between these songs was incredible. So I mean. I was floored by your show. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't recall being that entertained in a long while and uh, equally by the music as by your own ability to, to dialogue in between.
1: Yeah, well, it's, it's, um, I think that my old man had that, really. I think I get that from, well, again, I think that's part of your DNA if you're from Scotland. I mean, people in Scotland enjoy a story uh, they enjoy listening to a story, and they enjoy telling a story as well. And there's a lot of people. There's a tradition of that, and um, and my father was um, he was a he was a funny man and very charming, and and could tell a good story. And so you know, I I look at myself in a mirror now, and I don't even see myself anymore. I just I just see my old man. You know, I just I just you know I just see him. <laughs> You know, and it's funny because when he died, he died in two thousand and nine, and I was on stage in Glasgow, about twenty streets away from where he was born. And I thought, what are the chances of that? Um, and uh, it was a very, very intense night. Uh, but after he died, and I started, and I continued to do the the solo shows, it, it was weird. He, he, you know, I think that when somebody dies, that you that you have. He, um, I mean, I, I, first of all, I had a very, I had a deep, deep love, you know, for both my parents. Um, but I had a very, very volatile relationship with my father, you know, all, all, all my life. It was not easy. And, um, but it was, it was, this, there was this real deep connection, deep love, you know, in a kind of a, and, uh, and uh, so after he died, he seemed to inhabit me. He seemed to just—I let him. I wanted—I didn't want him to die. Uh, I didn't want to forget about him. I wanted to bring him up in all—all all the detail, you know, r- good and bad. You know, I wanted to remember all the things that had happened between us. And so—and so—he um, seemed to inhabit my body. And even when I was performing, I would—I would let him uh, inform me often about how to perform. And so, basically. There seemed to be some kind of vaudeville aspect to how I let myself perform. I thought, well, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna, tr- I'm not gonna try and um, control this too much. I'm going to just, you know, let uh, whatever comes into my consciousness, you know, come through, and especially in the storytelling. And and he seemed to. It, it I was kind of buoyed by him. I kind of felt more confident because I was you know carrying on some kind of family tradition <laughs> mm. that's
0: beautiful actually. I love that I mean and the fact that you were in Glasgow on the night to kind of send him off um
1: yeah i was I was wild I, I was upset that i wasn't home with him because my you know i i I should have gone home um but mine and my sister who was with him in Melbourne she said well you know I said well will I come home because I was on tour and she said well what are you going to do he's he's not conscious they don't know if he's going to come out of it or whether which way it's going to go so he could regain regain consciousness or he could just go you know what are you going to what are you going to do when you get here just sit around and and with me you know and um you know she had a point but at the end of the day I should have gone home to say goodbye to him you know but um as it was, I was in rainy old Glasgow, um, you know, with the sleep coming down, thinking, ah, oh, yes, now I completely understand why you left.
0: <laughs> I have a sneaking suspicion he would have endorsed you being there doing what you were doing. So uh, I note.
1: know, I know, there is that. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So um, before we wrap up, I know you did, uh, you did on your own uh, YouTube channel, you did something called Tuesday Talks, which are kind of cool. Right. Um, I've caught a few of those. Is that something you did kind of primarily during the, the lockdown last year? Or were you doing those ongoing prior?
1: No, I was doing them because um, I work with a guy, um, John, John Luaney, his name is, and uh, he um, uh, you know, he comes up with some things that um, he thinks might be a good idea for me to do on social media. Um, you know, re- left to myself, I would probably be a lot more reclusive um, than I already am. But I-, I like I like to spend a lot of time by myself. Um, but he says, "Well, and I did a streaming show. I did a Men at Work show last year. Um, the same band that I have uh, when I go out and tour, like when I'm going out now, I'm going out to, um, uh, on tour with this band. Um, uh, so it's the same band, but I just, I've just decided to do some Men at Work shows with the same band. I am just playing a Men at Work set list because people seem to... To just want to see that um you know they they don't really care you know who's in the band as long as i'm there and as long as they hear those songs you know and this band plays them really well and so um so i started to so i did that streaming show and then john said well okay the songs sound really great why don't you just split them up and we've got all the masters and just you know talk about each song you know i've never really done that before um ever really just talked about okay where this song came from so it made me think about it but but um but but people people have just been um uh, people seem to have responded responded to it really well you know
0: no they're fantastic i mean they're (laughs) <laughs> I love them. I mean, so accessible and it is fascinating to watch you break down those songs. I mean, for me, so it seems like others too. I'm not the only one there watching. Yeah, so. exactly. Um, and how do you feel like touching on that real quick? Um, you know, the social media thing, is it friend or foe? I mean, has it been helpful to you? I mean, as you've kind of taken more control of your own career, um, has it made it easier to find an audience? Harder? Uh, is oh, it annoying? I think is it great? <laughs>
1: Uh, I think it's definitely uh, definitely a friend um, if you if you find something to do that makes that that's comfortable, you know. Um, there's nothing worse than kind of oh you should do this because that's what people are doing, you know. Oh, I don't know how to do that. Oh, I don't really know what you're talking about. Or, you know. So it's it's not for. It, I just I just basically do things that kind of make sense to me, and and sometimes like like those things you're talking about you know, just kind of made sense. I was sitting around the studio and I just thought, okay, I just turned on this machine and, and can you talk about this song, can you talk about that song? So I would just, it was a fairly natural thing to do, you know?
0: Right, awesome. Well, I'm excited um, for the new record. Congratulations. Um, Thank you. I, I look forward, <laughs> when does your touring start? Does it start this year or are you going next year?
1: Well, we're on tour. Yeah, when, I think this is uh, when is this when is this going out this is uh, August uh, 6th oh we've done a couple of shows and they were marvellous
0: (laughs) we're out right now
1: (laughs) yeah yeah we're, we're, we're killing it I wouldn't imagine
0: anything <laughs> other than that. So <laughs> congratulations. Thank you very much. <laughs> All right, mate. Thank you so much for your time. Pleasure. You're always uh, just lovely. People have to see you perform live. It's a fantastic evening. I mean, seriously, it's full-on entertainment. It's great. So, Yeah,
1: thank you so much. I appreciate that. My
0: pleasure. Stay healthy, Colin.
1: Okay, you too.
0: Thank you. Bye. Thank you for listening. This show originates from the podcast capital, Austin, Texas. My producer is Sean O'Neill. Visit theradicalpot.com for updates and even some merchandise. Also, please subscribe at Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And I also ask that you please share episodes with your friends so we can continue to grow our community. See you all again next Friday.